It is wonderful to have you guys here this morning. My name is Jerry, one of the pastors here. Thrilled to uh, be here with you this morning as we open back up to the book of Acts, chapter 9. So if you got your copy of scripture, if you have your device, encourage you to open it up to Acts chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. Got a few other scriptures that we'll put on the screen for you. But we are excited to dive back in. Well, it's always a good question to ask somebody, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? You ask little kids that question, you're going to get a whole plethora of different answers. Um, this last couple of days, I took my son Caden away to the mountains for a couple of days, and we did some fly fishing out there, and something I try and do with our kids every couple of years, uh, take a special trip with them where we just talk about some of these things. He's 14 now, so we had some good conversations about, what do you think, man? Where do you want to head uh, in life, and what do you want to be, and that sort of thing, and that's good questions for all of us to ask ourselves. What do I want this next year to look like? What do I want to be five years from now and 10 years from now? Well, a couple of years back, I came across a, a blog that kind of asked the question in a different way, kind of turned it around a little bit, and it was really effective, and we had this conversation on Friday, and it's one that my wife and I talk about, and, and some other people that I interact with, and deep accountability, and it's not just, hey, what do you want this next year to look like, like you would have that conversation around, you know, New Year's resolutions and that sort of thing, but it kind of twists that question around a little bit, and it says, okay, a year from now, looking back, what do you want to be true of your life? What do you want to say about your life? What did you succeed in your life? What characteristics will entail your life a year from now looking back? What do you want those to be? And that's a really interesting question for us to really think about, even on an individual level, right? Whatever role you may be for me as a, as a father, a year from now, looking back, what do I want 2018 to look like? What characteristics do I want to be true of that? As a friend, what do I want to be true of that a year from now, looking back? As a husband, as a neighbor, what do I want to look back on and be, man, this is what I did, and these were the characteristics that marked me in the last year. It's an interesting way to look at things. And I bring up all that because as a church body, we have entered into this study on the book of Acts with that very mindset. Starting in October, we, we dove into the book of Acts. If you're newer to church, um, the book of Acts was written as an account of the very first church in its inception, in its purity, in its goodness. What God intended for the church to be is what we see in the book of Acts. And we stepped back as a staff and looked ahead and said, okay, what are the key words, the strong words that kind of jump out from the characteristics of this church so that our church can really be like that church? And so we started that in October, took a couple of breaks here and there for Christmas and for Easter, and we are back in it here this morning. Just by way of review, here are some of the strong words that kind of rose to the surface that we want to say a year from now, when we look back, we want to be marked by these words in the same way the early church was marked by these words. And just want to go through them real quick. This whole idea of you will be 
witnesses comes from kind of our anchor banner verse in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that says, and you will receive power and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this was Jesus talking to his disciples saying, hey, I'm about ready to leave. I'm about ready to go. But I've given you everything you need. You will receive power and you will be my witness. And we talked about this word witness, how it's not just they're going to be the witness of something like you would think about in a courtroom situation, right? Like, did you witness the accident? Did you witness the robbery? Right? In other words, did you stand there and did you just observe something? That's not what this means. This idea of you will be my witnesses means you will be my representation. You will be an extension of me, Jesus is saying. You're going to be me and you're going to carry on what I started over these last three years and you're going to impact way more people than me by myself when I was on the earth I could have done in three years. This is going to multiply and you're going to be an extension of that. So you will be a witness. The second one we talked about is that you will be filled Right In Acts chapter 2, there's that incredible account of they're waiting for the promise. We don't know what to do. We're in an upper room. The doors are all locked. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came down. An incredible display of power and fire and loud rushing wind. And the Holy Spirit entered into the early church. And so this power of God that at one time was kind of, uh, you know, held within a building, held within the temple, in the Holy of Holies, now all of a sudden in this new economy saying, nope, if you believe in Jesus, you stepped over into faith, you are now his temple. And the Holy Spirit of God is going to reside inside of you, not in that physical building. And you're going to have all of the wisdom and insight and comfort and power because the God of the universe is now residing in you and you will be filled. We talked about how the early church, we said you will be one. Remember in Acts chapter 2, it talked about there was continually a sense of awe among the people. And they were continually filled with wonder as they just saw this new movement rising up that was no longer selfish, but it was sharing. They were unified in purpose. They were unified in heart. And it says day after day they went from house to house and they were meeting and they were talking about scripture and they were breaking bread in in one another's homes. And it was just an incredible, incredible account of what the church should be and could be. We talked about how you will be powerful. In Acts chapter 3, we see an incredible healing that Peter and John were a part of, and this new power of God was now extending outside of just the walls of the early church, and and now the power of God was on display through the apostles. We talked about how you will be persecuted. In Acts chapter 4, you know how it is. As soon as a church or an individual starts to do something good, the enemy doesn't like it and aims to cut them down at the knees. And so you start to see some resistance from the people and Peter and John were thrown in prison and they were beaten and you start to see a persecution um, that starts to play out. But at the end of Acts chapter 4, you will be bold. You remember that account where the church was together and they were praying and it says and all of a sudden the whole place was shaken because there was so much power in that room as they prayed for boldness. 
And it seemed like there was a new resolve for these people. Like, okay, well, we see how damaging this can be. And these are our friends and they were thrown in prison. But you know what? We're going to pray that we can overcome this fear no matter what happens, God. You're in control. We believe that and we're going to go out with boldness. We're not going to be hindered anymore. It's an incredible thought for us. Talks about how you will be generous. End of Acts chapter 4 all the way through chapter 6. We see several different accounts of the generosity of the early church. End of Acts chapter 4. It was nobody thought that anything was theirs. So it's like if you need something or if you need something or if you need something and I have it, I'm going to give it to you. And there was a communal grace among them that they were just so giving and so loving and they were incredibly generous with each other. In Acts chapter 5, we see false generosity and people lying to the Holy Spirit and trying to make much of themselves and the punishment that came as a result of that. And then in Acts chapter 6, we've got the account where the early church was getting organized and deacons were set loose to help with the church's funds and distributing them to those who were in need. The early church was generous. That's our goal as well. We talked about the early church was countercultural, right? Acts chapter 7, that's Stephen, not afraid to stand up and just share a new way of living with people, which they didn't like, but he was countercultural. The early church was empowered. Remember in Acts chapter 8, again, the Holy Spirit displaying power and that account of Philip where he listened to the Holy Spirit, ran alongside the chariot and shared with somebody and how God is orchestrating everything. We just need to walk in that as we listen and hear from God. And finally, here we are in Acts chapter 9 with the idea that we will be transformed transform. So all these things that I just talked about, they're all on the podcast, on the website. Would encourage you, especially if you're newer here or just started coming in the last couple of months, if you need to mow your lawn or if you're on a long road trip or whatever else, encourage you to listen to these podcasts and kind of catch up because it's really been an incredible study in the book of Acts. Amen. Are you guys with me on that? I'm like, man, Lord, that's what I want. I see how they were. I see how they were effective. I see how they were multiplying. I see how the gospel was spreading forth all throughout the nations. And Lord, we want that here. We desire that here in this place. And we want to be one of thousands and tens of thousands in the state of North Carolina and and hundreds of thousands in the country that are going to be spreading your gospel, not through the wisdom of man and slick speech or anything like that, but through the people of God exiting these doors into neighborhoods and workplaces where they are carrying the gospel. They don't just hear it in the box of this room, but they are empowered and they are out living it even though we are scattered from this place. So that's what our prayer is. And man, I hope you've been as invigorated and excited about this study and humbled by this study as I have been in the sense that you look at this and you're like, okay, well, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm really bad at that, I'm not powerful, and I'm really not persecuted at all, and I could be more bold, and sometimes I'm stingy, you know what I mean? But just offering some of those things up to the Lord and say, okay, God, this is who we want to be. You promised you will be these things. Lord, help us to walk in them as a church and as individuals. So here we are this morning, and it's an incredible account of one of the true heavyweights of the faith. Uh, We're talking about this idea that you will be transformed. 
Okay, now when I say that word transformed or transformers, for any child of the 80s, what immediately comes to your mind? Those giant poles with the big machine on the top. No, just kidding. The cartoon, right? The Transformers, the Decepticons, and the Autobots. Anybody with me on all those? Still, movies came out after the really cool cartoons, so maybe some of you younger people know what we're talking about as well. But when we talk about the idea of transformation, it simply means something that changes drastically. And what we're going to see here in this incredible account of Acts chapter 9 is how Al Saul, who was as far from God as you could possibly be, met face to face with the transforming grace and power of Jesus Christ. So think about Paul. He was our first and most effective missionary of the 27 books of the New Testament. He wrote at least 13 of them. So almost wrote half of the New Testament by the number of books, by the volume, he wrote more like two-thirds of the New Testament. So this was definitely an incredible, incredible man. One author estimated that Paul traveled approximately 15,000 miles to share the gospel. 15,000 gospel miles were logged in by this man who was so charged up and fired up by this great grace. There's three different accounts of his transformation. One's in Acts chapter 9, which is what we're going to be going through. And this is the third person account. Okay, so this is the narrative of what happened to Paul. And then you've got a first person account in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. And that's where Paul is sharing once in Jerusalem and once in front of King Agrippa from his own perspective, what happened. And I would really challenge you guys to read through all three of them because they're incredible and they're encouraging. Chapter 22 and chapter 26. Read through that sometime later on this afternoon. But the big question that we want to ask to you all here this morning, this is Paul's gospel transformation story. What I want you to think about this morning is do you have a gospel transformation story? Has there been that profound change in your life? Certainly it's not probably going to be as incredible as what's displayed here in this account. But even so, we know for all of us um, who belong to Christ, there was that moment of salvation. Salvation is not a process. Okay, You don't start to do it and finish the process three years later. It can be a process of God opening your eyes, but there's that moment where you go from death to life, from disbelief to belief. And my prayer, even this morning in pouring over this, is that each of us sitting here this morning would be able to say, yes, I've had a gospel transformation. Maybe I don't remember the exact date, but man, I, I know that I believe and I know that God's changed me. Or maybe for some of you even here this morning, you would say, I'm not sure I've ever had a gospel transformation moment. I've kind of organized the message basically in four brief questions. Okay, the first question is, who was Paul? Second one, what happened to him? The third one is, what do we learn from it? And the fourth one is, what are we going to do about it? So if you're taking notes here this morning, that's kind of the setup. But let's just talk briefly about who was Paul. At this point, his name was Saul. Okay, if you get a little confused about the Saul and the Paul, same person, 
Many people think that when Jesus transformed him, he also changed his name to Paul. That's not true. Saul was his Hebrew name, and he doesn't start to be called Paul until even later on in Acts, because that was his name to go reach and impact the Gentiles. Okay, so it wasn't a spiritual name change necessarily. But uh, here his name is Saul because he's still dealing with the Jewish people, and this is important for us. A couple of quick things about him. He was born into privilege. Okay, he was born into a city called Tarsus. It was an incredibly prominent city. It was called the Little Athens. Okay, in other words, we know about Athens in Greece and how that was a center for education and wealth and culture. Tarsus was the same way. So he was educated and grew up in a very well-heeled family situation. He was a disciple of a famous rabbi called Gamaliel. All right, and this is important because this was one of the top teachers of that day. All right, picture the equivalent being Saul going to Harvard or Yale or something like that. He was one of the few disciples that was able to sit at the feet in his formative years of this incredible, respected rabbi. So he was learning all the ins and outs of Jewish law and how to be a Pharisee. And this was added to his resume of credentials as to why he was so successful. He was discipled by Gamaliel. He was a Roman citizen. That was kind of a big deal. Tarsus was one of the Roman territories, uh, a Roman city. So if you were born there, you had all the rights of a Roman citizen. The equivalent would be if you were born in Guam or Puerto Rico, right? You're still a U.S. citizen even though you weren't born in the continental United States. And back then, that was an incredibly big deal. Privileges and rights and honor went on with that, and Paul had it. He was bilingual. He knew Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, possibly Latin, and he was incredibly successful. In Philippians chapter 3, we get the account where Paul's kind of bragging about his testimony and saying, hey, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was well ahead of all other people in success. But what I want us to think about here this morning is that Paul was incredibly successful, but it was pointed and it was poured out at the wrong thing. I was thinking about this concept and this quote from D.L. Moody, famous theologian, came to mind. It says this, Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but rather of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. I want you to look at that quote very closely. And I want you to think about your life. Okay, so here was Paul. And by every account, he was at the top of his game. He was well-respected. Everybody knew his name. He had power. He had influence. He had finance. Most likely, he had resources. But ultimately, he was very successful at something that didn't really matter in comparison to the plan that God had for him. So that's where we find ourselves in the background of who was Paul. But number two, so what happened to him? What is this moment of impact? What are you talking about, this gospel transformation? Well, the backdrop where we find him in this situation is at a moment when he was the best at being the worst. Okay, Paul was the best at being the worst. 
In other words, he was incredibly successful in his career, but his career was to absolutely destroy this new movement of Christianity. Let me read for you briefly from uh, Acts chapter 8, one chapter earlier. This is the account right at the tail end of Stephen, who was the first martyr um, right after he had been killed, stoned to death, chapter 8, verse 1. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. So there you get the idea that he's a leader, he's wielding authority, people have to ask him permission, and he's saying, yes, go ahead, stone that man, kill that man. He approved of it. And it says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So he was using his authority not just to say, yes, go ahead and do it, but that gave permission for everybody else to persecute Christians as well. You notice it said that on that day, there was a great persecution. And here's Saul going house to house, not just taking men, not just taking the head of the house. It says dragging off men and women. Think about that for a moment. Dragging them through the dirt, putting them in prison, separating families, heartless. And yet he was convinced that he was doing the right thing. Now skip down to uh, chapter 9. Okay, so here we, here we get Saul again. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's almost like this was his all-consuming passion. He was obsessed with getting as many Christians in prison as possible. It says, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, there it is again, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now you need to understand that the name of this first church, what they were known as, was simply called The Way. That was the name of the first church. It's kind of a cool name. Taken after uh, John 14, I'm sure, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That was that was the church right there. We're called The Way. And, you know, here's Saul, not just putting in prison Christians in Jerusalem, now he's headed to Damascus that is about 150 miles away. Okay, so think about this, guys. Saul's being creative. Saul's being ambitious. He's like, hey, wait a minute. I've got a few connections at some of the other temples in some of these other cities. I'm going to get permission from them to tell me who are the believers, followers of the way, and I'm going to go and drag them out, men and women. And I'm willing to hike 150 miles for it. An interesting question is, would we be willing to walk 150 miles to share the gospel with someone? And this man's ambition couldn't be stopped to destroy the gospel. That's the kind of person that he was. So what happened to him? Let's keep on reading, starting in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus 
whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. So what's really two interesting concepts that we can kind of mine out from this incredible experience. The first one is this, that, you know, we talked about Acts 1-8 and you will be a witness. In other words, you will be an extension of Christ. That's what the church is. And here you get a beautiful example of that. Because here Saul, this blinding light comes. He doesn't know what to do. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me. So as far as we know, Saul didn't really have any actual physical connection with Jesus. Okay, this is the first we hear about him. We don't find any accounts of him being at the cross or or anything else. But yet, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me even though I'm removed? And the point is, guys, that Jesus is so connected with his believers, if Saul is persecuting them, then Saul is persecuting him because they are the witnesses. We see this illustration all throughout scripture, right? Jesus talks about the church is his bride, right? You ever have somebody criticize or be mean to or be cruel to or say something negative about your spouse, about your wife, or about your husband? And like how that like eats eats you alive inside and anger bubbles up, why is that? Well, it's because you're one, right? And it's the same exact thing in the New Testament. Jesus says, the church, these people right here, that's my bride. And if you're going to cut them down, that's going to hurt me as well. You're going to be persecuting me as well. And that's a thought for us this morning. That person that you're angry with, if they're a Christian, that person you've gossiped about, that person that you don't like to be around, That's an extension of Christ as well. Sobering, right? What about the other interesting piece there? At the end of it, it says, Saul had this experience and it says, he was blind and saw nothing but darkness for three days. Does that ring a bell to anybody here? How cool is it to think that the risen Christ is now revealing himself to Saul and saying, you know what, you're going to experience a little of what I experienced. Three days in darkness, just the same way I was three days in the grave before the light dawned. It's incredible. Think about this concept. Saul was trying to do things for God, and he didn't realize that he was far from God. You see that? He was fully convinced that God was so pleased with how vigilant he was, but actually he was doing the opposite. How insightful for any of you that were here last week and heard Rich Rudolph speak, who's a missionary in Germany, and saying how for the German people, it's so hard for them to really grasp the concept of God because here they thought that they were fighting for God. And they thought that they were doing God's will. At least that's what they were told. But they lost World War I. And they lost World War II. So they're like, well, you know, we were fighting for God, but it, he doesn't exist. And so I don't don't know if any of you thought this, but I'm looking at the other side is like, 
man, I look at some of those people and what happened over there and like, that's the worst of worst evils ever. How could they possibly think that they were doing God's will? And you kind of get the same idea here with Saul, right? He was so convinced he was doing things for God and yet reality was he was incredibly far from God. Let's pick up the passage here in verse 10. It says this, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now you need to know this is a different Ananias from the one that we talked about in chapter 5 because he died. Okay, so this is a totally different guy. Very common name there. This was the Bob Johnson, I guess, of that time. I don't know. But the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, again, different Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Just stop right there. So we don't get all the commentary, but we know that Saul was blinded. We know that he couldn't see anything. He was led by the hand, and he's just waiting. But what is he doing? He's praying. And you can't help but wonder if in his mind he's playing back all these times, all these families that he ripped apart. If he's seeing in his mind's eye Stephen, you know, like, and then throwing all the rocks at him. But he's praying undoubtedly humbled, undoubtedly, Lord, how could I do such a thing? Keep on reading in verse 12. For he has seen a vision. In a vision, a man named Ananias comes in and lays hands on him so that he might again receive his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, time out. I have heard from many about this man. Remember his reputation, right? I've heard from many how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all of us who call on your name. Man, if you got a pen, if you got a highlighter on your iPad, whatever it is, underline verse 15. Highlight verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he, that is Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. He's saying, newsflash, none of this is a surprise to me. I know who he is, and I know what he's done, but he doesn't know what I'm going to do through him. It's an incredible concept that he calls him a chosen vessel. That's the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, that talks about we are in jars of clay. Right, that passage somewhere in there. It talks about something that holds something else, whether it's an earthen vessel or, or, or whatever. By itself, it's not necessarily valuable. It's only valuable based on what is inside. And now God is saying to Saul, yep, this guy, he's a vessel, all right. He's been carrying on his own name and spreading and pouring out his own glory and his own fame, but he is my chosen vessel to now carry my name to the nations. It's an incredible, incredible concept. So number three, what do we learn from this account? A couple of key points for you. The first one's this. Jesus is pursuing you whether you realize it or not. Jesus is pursuing you whether you're aware of it or not. And it's really crazy to think about some of these ideas that start to come into play when you see the hand of the Lord at this moment with Saul, with the background that he has and, and all, the, uh, all the experiences that he's been able to have, how God divinely ordained this moment to happen. Think about this. 
At the end of chapter 7, you remember when Stephen was about ready to die and he looked up to the heavens and it says the heavens were opened and it says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God just as he was about ready to die. You remember that? And he looked around at the people around him and what did he say? He said, Father, do not hold this against them. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You remember that? Acts chapter 9, what we see right at this moment, is the answer to Stephen's prayer in Acts chapter 7. Because you remember who was right there approving of everything? Saul. And Stephen's like, yep, I see that man. He's such a young man. He's so zealous. He knows so much. He knows so much scripture. Lord, don't hold it against him. Forgive him. And in this account, we see that very thing happen right at this very moment. It's incredible. Back in the 70s, you know, there was a movement of Christianity, kind of a grassroots kind of movement called the Jesus Movement. Anybody around for that or remember that? Kind of like Christian hippies. We've got a couple of them back there. Awesome. But right, they, and there was kind of this, you know, swell of people that are like, hey, you know what? I've tried drugs and I've tried Eastern religion, but man, I found Jesus, right? And that was like the key phrase that many of them had. I found Jesus. Now, and we hear that sometimes in songs, and maybe you've heard somebody say that, and we understand what they're trying to say, right? We, we see some scriptures like, hey, if anyone seeks after the Lord with all their heart, they will find them, you know. We understand that side of things. But I want us to think about what really happened here, and it wasn't that Saul found Jesus. It was that Jesus found Saul. That Jesus was pursuing Saul. That Jesus was chasing after even his enemy in ways that he never even knew for his own honor and glory. You think about the parable of the 99 sheep, right? You don't find the one sheep that, that wandered off and was now lost searching around for the shepherd. Oh, where is he? Maybe right down. Oh, there he is. No, you see the shepherd going off into the wilderness and pursuing the sheep. So it's incredible to think about several interesting passages that kind of give you that idea that this was part of God's plan. Acts chapter 22, verses 14 through 16, right in the beginning of that, it says this, you know, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will. He's talking about Saul. To see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness. Does that sound familiar? That's in Acts chapter 22. Awesome saying to Paul, you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise to be baptized. Wash away your sins. It's incredible. What about this one from Galatians chapter 1, verse 15? Again, this is Paul speaking. He says this, he that is God who had set me apart before I was born called me by his grace. You see what's happening there? This is not an accident. God knew Saul. Even before he was born, he had planned all these things out. And most importantly, his grace was enough. Second concept I want you to write down. What do we learn from this account? You are never too far from the grace of God. You are never too far for the grace of God. If there's any encouragement that comes from this incredible account, it's like, all right, well, for me, it doesn't matter what I've done. You're probably not going to be worse than what Saul did. You guys remember uh, when you are growing up, maybe some people still do it, playing that game, Never Have I Ever? You know what I'm talking about? 
which if you really think about it, seems like kind of a game to see who is the most bland person in the bunch. You know what I mean? Because you're like, all right, everybody put up 10 fingers, you know, and someone's like, uh, never have I ever, you know, gone skydiving. And if you haven't, then you have to take a finger down. You know, never have I ever gone outside of North Carolina. Take a finger down if you haven't, right? So really the winner is the one who has never done anything. But think about this. In a spiritual realm, you could not, I mean, the Apostle Paul, he would be terrible at that game. He'd be out after the first 10 questions. Why? Okay, here we go. Never have I ever dragged a woman around by her hair. Paul's like, you know, never have I ordered the execution of somebody that hadn't done anything wrong. All right, you know. I mean, just think about the list that could go on and on and on about how Paul, Saul had been such an enemy of the gospel, such an enemy of the cross. You are never too far from that grace of God. How about this concept? Paul understood that grace and how the grace of God that was displayed in forgiving his past also allowed him incredible endurance for the future. He understood the gravity of what he had done. And when he recognized that even that ocean of grace, even with everything that he had done, his grace was still enough, he said, okay, well, from here on out, moving ahead, what can man possibly do to me that the grace of God can't allow me to get through? I'm God's chosen vessel to spread his name and fame so it doesn't matter what man does to me. And then you see an account like this later on in 2 Corinthians where he's just like spewing off in this tirade about like, here's everything that's happened to me. You guys ready? Here we go. He says, are they all these other people? Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one, Paul says, for I am talking like a madman. He's like, I'm just using this as illustration. He says, I've had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. He says, five different times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one, which that was the legal limit of how badly you could beat someone. 39 lashes. He said, I had that five times. He says, three different times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. You would think after the first shipwreck, he would have been like, I think I'll just walk, take the long way around. No, three different times he was shipwrecked. He was like, I was on frequent journeys. I was in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. He says, in toil and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposed. He says, apart from all those other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So he says, who is weak and I am not weak? Who's made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. This incredible man understood the grace of God. And that, okay, God, what's man going to do to me? You're going to cause me to suffer? Hey, if that passes on the glory of your name somehow, and if your strength is seen even in my weakness, I am willing to do it. The great thing about the gospel is that you've never done something that God can't redeem. 
you've never done something that God can't redeem and transform into something new. What did Paul's transformation look like? He went from cold and violent to warm and loving. He went from selfish to now giving. He went from detached and unemotional to compassionate and involved. He went from secure in his own righteousness to reliant on Christ as enough. For Paul, the most important thing was to share the gospel. He was transformed and he wanted everybody else to have a gospel story as well. Now later on today or tonight, when you read Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, you'll see this account where he's in front of the king and he starts sharing right out of the gate about the gospel. And the king's like, are you really trying to convert me to be a Christian this quickly? Right, so gone are these days for Paul of like, hey, I need to know somebody. I need to build a big, deep relationship with them for years and years and years before I share the gospel. There's an urgency to the message of Paul. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, I aim to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's why the account in chapter 22, verse 16 is so powerful because the apostle Paul says, is there any reason why I shouldn't get baptized right now? Immediately, why should I wait? Why should I delay? Let's get on with caring and sharing this message. It's urgent. So what are we gonna do about it? Two quick questions for you all here this morning as we get ready to close. What are you gonna do about it? Well, what if you're a Paul in here this morning? What if you're really Saul at this point before Acts chapter 9, right? What if you've been spending your time and your energy and your resources in successes and most people would look at you and be like, that guy's pretty successful. That woman seems to have it all together. But what if just like Paul, you have pictured yourself as doing things for God, but the reality is you are far from God and you've not had that moment of gospel transformation where you understand the sacrifice that Jesus made to invite you in to a relationship with you? What if all your experiences uh, from here to the past were to be used and redeemed by God and he's calling you right now? I don't doubt that there could be some of those people in here even this morning. And maybe you need that experience of gospel transformation and maybe today is your day of salvation. Maybe for some of you, what if you're Ananias? What if you're somebody who is called to go and welcome and connect to really what you think is the worst of sinners? You're afraid. There's something holding you back. You're cautious. But the Lord is saying, no, it's okay. I've opened up that opportunity. I want you to reach out. I want you to invite. I want you to get out of your comfort zone. Even here this morning, the grace of God and the power of God is enough. And it's the only thing that matters. So as we look at this account of Paul and how God used one man with such a sordid past to explode the gospel, man, my heart is just so hoping and praying that the next Apostle Paul is sitting right here. Or better than that, maybe he's in your neighborhood and he just doesn't even know it yet. 
Again, as we scatter from this place and share this message, who knows what kind of divine appointments God is going to orchestrate for us. Because that's what he did for the early church. And that's what we're praying God does for us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes together. In our great God and Father, we just are overwhelmed with humility as we think about how you have redeemed our lives. God, if we belong to you this morning, if we've made that decision, Lord, you have pursued us, even though we were your enemies, God, you have pursued us and invited us into a relationship with you that is transformative. And we thank you, God, and Lord, we just ask that as we go out from this place, Lord, you would remind us of this incredible story of your grace and your goodness. And Lord, that you would propel us to be open and to be bold to share this great message with others. So Lord, we thank you and just lead us and guide us, we pray, in your son's powerful, transformative name.